listening to Superpower Curiosity with Dr. Richard Gillette, and I'm Molly Ruth, producer for the podcast. Richard is a number one best-selling author, renowned psychiatrist, and international keynote speaker. His previous books include Overcoming Depression, which was translated into seven languages, and Change Your Mind, Change Your World, published by Simon & Schuster. Season one of Superpower Curiosity is all about getting beyond divisiveness and why we feel awesome when we do. This is a subject Richard is passionate about and is the theme of his recent book. It's a freaking mess, How to Thrive in Divisive Times. This episode is about transcending divisiveness, excerpted from It's a Freaking Mess, and read by Richard himself. Let's go. We human beings do not have to create divisions. We have an amazing capacity to relate to other people, whatever their apparent differences and beliefs. When we make heartfelt connections with others, we feel a sense of oneness with them, and we experience compassion, warmth, respect. These are very pleasurable feelings. Experiencing ourselves as being one with others feels good. And this works with both those we know and those we've never met before. But if this is true, How then can we make sense of the divisiveness that seems so pervasive, not just in our own country, but in so many societies in this world? Scroll through today's news and chances are you'll be looking at the latest roll call of suffering and injustice, political feuds and corruption, religious violence, racial prejudice, an increasing divide between rich and poor, destruction of poorer people's environments, partisan imprisonments, and so on. These social divisions are all deeply personal. When your values are ridiculed by those with different beliefs, it hurts. In the US, the idea of the American dream is that everyone willing to work hard has an opportunity for success because there is a level playing field. But when you find this level playing field is actually not level at all, you become aware of the suffering, financial, professional, and perhaps most of all in your heart, which like everyone's craves respect, kindness, and equality. Oneness with others feels good for all parties. Divisiveness does not feel good to either party, even to the perpetrator of division. Take the divisiveness that drives prejudice, for example. Prejudice against women, different religions, races, or nationalities. Prejudice against those who have less money. There is a common illusion that the apparent winners in these battles, those who, until now, have maintained the upper hand of power, will feel good. But while those wielding prejudice might feel united with each other, This kind of unity against others, even if buttressed with a thousand justifications, does not create happiness. 
It creates an inner world governed by anger against those we are prejudiced against, and by fear of those same people. Anger and fear do not feel good. People with prejudices are not at peace. Well, you might ask, if oneness with others feels so good, and if divisiveness is so destructive and feels so bad, why would anyone choose divisiveness? This is a question that has puzzled me for a long time. In addition to a passionate interest in trying to understand more about human nature, I've had the good fortune to live on four different continents, Africa, Europe, Asia, and North America. Participating in different cultures, I've been able to see more of my own assumptions and prejudices. I've also experienced the beauty and creativity of human diversity. And sometimes, at the same time, the heavy self-righteousness of divisive prejudice, which creates so much misery. As a psychiatrist, I wanted to know the mechanisms and the motivations for this extraordinary process of divisiveness that seems to be so disadvantageous to the human race. Surely, I thought, there must be cogent reasons for why we do this. And maybe, if we could understand these reasons, there would be a way to make a change. Why it's so easy to get caught in divisiveness. The commonest answer given to this question of why we choose the self-destructive path of divisiveness is that we human beings are hardwired to be tribal and separate. Faced with horrific examples of what humans do to each other, and reminded of these every day by the regular pounding of the news, it's easy to feel daunted or to shrug a sorry conclusion that humanity is irredeemably selfish and destructive by nature. I have found, however, that the reality is far more hopeful. That human divisiveness is not some inevitable, hardwired, biological imperative that we can only do our best to find a way around. There is a good deal of evidence, which I will come to, that we are not hardwired to be jerks. Yes we inherit the important ability to fight when necessary and to defend ourselves and our families from others. Yet we also, and equally, inherit a capacity for profound empathy. And we are blessed with the amazing complexity of the cerebral cortex, which offers us a vast choice in understanding and reaction. Still, there are many social forces that encourage divisive behaviour. The media often sell copy and set their clickbait traps by fomenting outrage and other emotions. The more adrenaline an article can force you to secrete, the more likely you are to read on, the more likely you are to respond to advertisements, and the more likely you are to remember the article and post it. Divisions and anger make money for media moguls. Anger doesn't feel so great, it's true, but it is memorable and the adrenaline can be quite addictive. Politicians use divisive tactics to gain votes and cement power. Some politicians can be extremely clever at homing in on a population's anger or dissatisfaction and redirecting it in blame of a minority group that has limited voting power. Hitler was brilliant at this. 
It is not easy for most of us to avoid an angry reaction to this kind of manipulative political behavior. Yet, damn it, if we do get angry, we've just been sucked into exactly what the divisive politician wants. Anger on one side increases anger on the other in a truly vicious cycle. Anger versus counter-anger cements opposing positions and buttresses the divisive worldview. Later in this book, I mention some ways around this trap. This is not just a political trap. It affects everyone, because we each suffer from our own emotional reactions to what those in power may do. Resentment, indignation, contempt, outrage, unease, worry, fear, and anger don't usually feel good to us, especially when we experience them over a long time. Otherizing. There is another way of looking at divisiveness that I found really helpful. It is the temptation to otherize. To otherize is to make the mental decision that this other person is either an enemy or of no importance. The modern word otherize has not yet made the printed dictionaries, but is already in all the online dictionaries. Otherizing is the devastating ability we have to view different human beings as other, or as nothings who are unworthy of human compassion and care. To otherize is to deny that the humanity in me is also in you, and that the humanity in us is also in them. Mentally, we are turning others into lower beings, either temporarily or more permanently, without the normal human attributes of intelligence, kindness, and soul. Otherizing is more obvious when we think of gangs, religious extremists, and violent racists who demonize those who are different, seeing them as abhorrent beings worthy of disdain or death. But otherizing comes in many forms that are not necessarily so extreme. Recently, a man shared this with me. I have these neighbors, and I have always had a nice cordial relationship with them. They were friendly, and so was I. Then a while ago, I saw the sign of the politician they were supporting on the edge of their lawn. It was, uh, you know, in good view of our road. I was shocked. My whole feeling towards them changed pretty well instantly. I found myself indignant and, I have to admit, angry. I told my wife about the sign. How could they support that guy, I said to her. Can't they see who he is? What's wrong with them? They must be crazy, so damn stupid. After I said that, my wife was upset too. If I'm honest, and I'm not proud of this, I had contempt for these people. It was a horrible feeling to have, but there was no pleasure in this feeling. I felt bad. And then every time I saw their sign, which was every day, I felt bad again. I don't quite know how to change all this for the better. Name-calling, judgments, and insults, like crazy or stupid, are telltale symptoms of otherization. It's useful to see this because then we can do something about it. When we otherize, suddenly all the other's humanity disappears, and they become nothing but objects of derision. In this state, there is no room for curiosity. I wonder what his reasons were for voting the way he did. 
nor for compassion. In most cases, as soon as we otherize, we suffer, since the otherizing emotions like irritation, frustration, exasperation, mistrust, alarm, foreboding, fear, anger, are all unpleasant to experience. But sometimes when we otherize, we do not feel anger, we do not appear to suffer, and we may be unaware of any issue at all. This happens when those we otherize are not experienced as enemies, but as people of so little importance they are not noticed or taken seriously. In May 2016, there was a public outcry in the United States when the pharmaceutical company Milan raised the price of its epinephrine auto-injector called EpiPen. Since the year 2009, Milan had raised the price of this drug some 500% to more than $600 for a standard pack of two EpiPens. The cost of the actual drug, epinephrine, is about $1. Epinephrine is another name for adrenaline, which has been around for a few million years in every human being who has ever lived. Extra adrenaline can be useful in moments of very severe allergy, and those who are in danger of going into anaphylactic shock can be saved from death by epinephrine auto-injectors. Since EpiPen had virtually no competition in the US, and since people are willing to pay quite a lot to avoid dying, Milan could get away with massive price increases. This was called price gouging in the press, and the company was accused of greed. But the press did not, so far as I know, look into the fact that such greed cannot manifest without otherizing. When CEO Heather Bresch was asked about the 500% price increase, her reported reply was, this is business. Bresch, as the top executive of Milan, paid herself over $18 million a year, which is also business. Other people scratch their heads and ask, how can a business person be so oblivious to human needs and potential suffering? The answer is simple and, I think, important. Otherization creates safe compartments that are watertight to compassion. If the CEO of Milan worried that one of her own children might die if she would take a certain action, she would almost certainly avoid that action. But when, because of the 500% increase in the price of EpiPen, some children were more likely to die because their parents were uninsured and could not afford the 600 cost of a $1 drug, Bresch did not take any action to protect these children. We can understand this difference because we can understand that compassion is quite often reserved for family and friends and those we frequently see, and it quite often does not extend to others, especially to those we will never meet. And this is just the point. Otherization is the denial, cutting off, avoidance of care for those we do not consider in our own clan, the avoidance of compassion for, in short, the other. Those we do not see and those we consider outside our group are often denied by us the benefit of being seen as fully human, with feelings and soul. They are not fully recognized as families with playing, laughing, crying children and caring, worrying, loving mothers. The mother, symbol of compassion, loses her M and becomes other. 
The example of EpiPen is one of hundreds you and I could come up with. Otherization appears everywhere because it is a universal, though not inevitable, human possibility. In looking at otherizers, it is very, very easy to act as they do, to otherize them. Once we call any of these otherizers greedy, selfish, stupid, evil, bigoted, and a hundred other scathing adjectives we might come up with, we have otherized them. Oh, how easy it is to otherize. Sometimes I otherize my wife. We're in the middle of an argument about some detail that is probably not that important in the whole scheme of the infinite universe, and I find myself, if I pause to reflect, so determined to win my point that I've converted this person whom I love into an alien being who, in that moment, is not deserving of compassion, heart, or even just being listened to. Fortunately, this is temporary. When I regain my senses, I wonder with amazement why trying to win some trivial point seemed so vital at the time, and how quickly that moment of otherization destroyed compassion. I can also look with some pleasure at how recognizing these moments of otherization gives me a different choice, even in the middle of a disagreement. Designating an enemy. Otherization of a perceived enemy, whether personal or political, costs us our contentment. When you are faced with a blatant and unrepentant political otherizer, I admit it is not so easy to avoid otherizing back. Yet, when you otherize a person, group, or society, you make an enemy that jumps around within your own head. This creates a problem for your peace of mind. It's not easy to feel peaceful when there's an internal war going on. The mental designation of enemy leads you to a natural emotional reaction of upset, fear, or anger. At this point, the enemy begins to jump around in your body as well as your mind. Your body feels the physiology of your action hormones, that adrenaline surge desire to fight or defend, fueled with the emotions of anger or fear. And conversely, as the adrenaline surges within the body, the mental designation of enemy is stamped with emotional power. It must be true. I can feel it. This play between emotion and judgmental designation can be a vicious cycle of increasing aversion and agitation. None of this feels good. While the aversion is generically categorized in terms of the animal reactions of anger or fear, each of these prime emotions has many variants in us human beings. Some examples of anger-related feelings are irritation, indignation, dislike, contempt, frustration, exasperation, outrage. Some examples of fear-related feelings are worry, unease, restlessness, mistrust, alarm, foreboding, dread, while short-term anger and fear may be useful in some immediate situations, and short-lived anger may sometimes feel good, long-term anger and fear, and their many variants, are usually unpleasant to experience. In addition, 
There is a lot of evidence that anger held over the long term is correlated with more cardiac problems and other diseases and a significantly higher chance of early death. More on this later. There is an alternative. We can protect ourselves from the constant invitations to anger and fear, and we can thrive in the pleasure of elevated emotions. The art is to protect ourselves without closing our hearts. When we do not cast the other as an enemy within our own minds, there is no need for a fight-flight reaction of anger or fear or any of their variants. And when we're not suffused with aversive emotion, we are more likely to be effective socially. The sense of open-heartedness that transcends division is peacemaking internally as well as externally and deeply gratifying. In the state of open-heartedness, there are a number of common elevated feelings. Here are some examples. Contentment, calmness, inspiration, gratitude, wonder, joy, awe, empathy, compassion, care, love, humility, kindness, curiosity. If you were to ask people which list of feelings, the anger, fear ones, or the elevated ones, they would prefer to experience, most would prefer the open-hearted, elevated feelings. Yet so many of us spend more time than we would like in feelings related to anger or fear. This book is on the art of how to get from anger and fear-related feelings to the elevated feelings of open-heartedness. And since all feelings are contagious, the more we live in the more pleasant-to-experience elevated feelings, the more we help others to do the same. There is an important caveat, however. Getting to the elevated feelings does not involve pretense. It doesn't mean bottling unwanted feelings with the tension of suppression, nor disappearing to some never-never land where action is avoided. On the contrary, we can be fully responsive and do everything we can to make a difference. When we do this using the elevated feelings that are available to us, we are far more likely to be successful, in addition to being happier. Thanks so much for listening to Superpower Curiosity with Dr. Richard Gillette. We want to hear what you think, and we're also putting together listener questions for upcoming episodes. So if you have a question or comment for Richard, you can send an email and or voice memo to superpowercuriosity at gmail.com. It also helps us out a lot if you rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Stay tuned to this feed. We're dropping the first three episodes all at once, so listen on to hear me interview Richard in episode two, and learn about how emotions, money, and votes get all tangled up in episode three. 
Episode 4 is scheduled to come out in two weeks, so make sure you're subscribed wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss Richard's take on how divisive emotions can save or ruin your life. Till next time, stay curious. Stay curious.